During the summer, we've explored how to transition. A transition from the I life to the we life. What life together might look like in Christ. Last week, we emphasized what holds young and old together in the body of Christ. Last week's Psalm 145. I'll share just a few verses here. Verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I just want to pause just for a moment and just say that is so significant. That's why we're all here today. That's why we have faith. That's why we heard from someone else the gospel of the Lord. One generation shall commend your works to another. I know the person who commended those works to me. And the Lord gave me grace and faith to respond. It's a gift. It's truly a gift. I wasn't seeking to respond, but he was seeking me. The Lord is a seeker. In that same Psalm 145, verses 12 through 13, the people of God shall make known to the children of man your mighty deeds, speaking to the Lord, and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. From generation to generation, the kingdom of God that Jesus was talking about to Nicodemus this morning. Unless one is born of water in the Spirit, they cannot see or enter into this kingdom. He's speaking of earthly and heavenly things coming together. And so how does the dominion endure? How does his dominion endure from generation to generation? And what links us together, young and old? We talked a little bit about this last week, and I mentioned today's psalm. And in our BCP, there's a little different translation. Verse 5, the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness endures throughout all generations. Another translation says, his truth endures from generation to generation. What links us together? It's his truth. Personified in Christ, but also the teachings of Christ and the apostles and the Old Testament, which proclaims Christ, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. His truth endures from generation to generation. What links us together is not affinities, gender, race, class, or any other form of identity politics. His truth links us together from generation to generation. Last week, we heard Jesus say, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. They didn't understand him. They didn't understand their own slavery not only to the Romans, that wasn't the issue that Jesus was talking about, but to the slavery of sin themselves. They were blind, they could not see. And Jesus is speaking about a freedom from the heavenly realm that has conquered the power of sin in the person of Christ crucified and risen and ascended. 
The forces of darkness aim not only to disfigure the truth about God, but also about the nature of the human person, the heavenly and the earthly, you see. There's truth about the heavenly man and the nature of God, and there's truth about the earthly realm where we have been made in the image and likeness of God, male and female. That truth is being dismantled, not only in the secular world, but in some sectors of the church, right? The church throughout space and time is called to pass on. Uh, that word is tradition, actually, in the Greek. It's called to tradition, to pass on the formation of the next generation as mothers, as fathers, as, as pastors, as clergy, as spiritual moms and dads, we all have some form of responsibility of, first of all, praying for those amongst us, right? So it's good to get the names of our children and to get to know their names before the throne of God. Make mention of their names before the throne of God. That's the most glorious thing you can begin to do because God is listening and he is their father. And that's one of our privileges as a royal priesthood to make mention of others' names before the throne of God and to ask, to seek, to knock for the welfare of others. And so that formation takes place in so many different ways. But right before our very eyes, the meaning of words are being altered. I want to quote from Christopher West in his little book, Eclipse of the Body. Christopher West. And think about it, the psalm today, we've been talking for the last two weeks, from generation to generation. That's, that's what we're thinking about. And how will St. Aidan's pass on the apostolic truth? as it is in Jesus, from generation to generation. Let's think about the alteration of the meaning of words. The origin of gender shares the same root as words like generation, generate, generous, genesis, genealogy, genetics, and so forth. You could just go on. But the Greek word gen means to produce or to give birth to. We give birth to the next generation of Christians as well as children. There's generation and there's regeneration. And that's the task of the church to do both, <laughs> to be fruitful and multiply. And to see that those who are multiplied are regenerated to create a holy generation. Gender means the way you generate new life. Christopher West goes on to say, And gender is determined by another gen word, which is an anatomical word that we're familiar with. It's genitals. Which is to say that 
your genitals determine your gender. Yes, there is a very minute percentage of people born with ambiguous genitalia. And yes, there are people with gender dysphoria, a deeply troubling state in which one feels like they're trapped in another body. We're not addressing that this morning. But now extremely young children are taught to doubt their biological gender. To imagine another gender. I guess it's Facebook that still has 500 different identities that you can choose from. That's the world that our children, this generation, is being raised up into. It's unlike anything I experienced. And I'm sure that you experienced as parents. This is relatively a new phenomenon. Uh, and so all this is important to maintain the unaltered reality. There is an unalterable reality that we receive from God. That his truth endures from generation to generation. Christopher West goes on to say, When a culture understands and reverences the meaning of our genitals, the call to generate the next generation, that culture will understand and reverence the meaning of gender. Attack the meaning of our genitals. And an attack on the meaning of gender is inevitable. Rather than gender being based in biology, it has now become ruled by Descartes, I think, therefore, I am. This means that I am a disembodied person now with an autonomous personhood that can imagine oneself to be anything. The really hard thing about this is that we have to take that seriously. We're expected to believe this. The 500 different identities, we're expected to believe this. The church proclaims that the body, the human body, male and female, that very reality proclaims the gospel. Male and female, in the way that we are created by God, in the image and likeness of God, this is the beautiful reality. Our very bodies proclaim the gospel. And that's why it's very difficult and serious when we start messing with our bodies. What is the gospel in this regard? We heard it this morning in Ephesians 5, put another way. The mystery of Christ and his church. Our bodies coming together, male and female, proclaim the mystery of Christ and his church and his bride in union with her bridegroom. Jesus refers to this mystery of union in speaking to Nicodemus, yes, in the gospel today, John 3, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about generations in crisis. There's a need, but unless one is regenerated, that generation will not see the kingdom of God, will not be able to enter into the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, they will not enter, verse 8, 
the kingdom of God. It takes a supernatural recreation to transform out of the redemptive work of Christ that broken communion that we enter into this world with. Paul says in the same book in Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God has made you alive. Okay? That's called regeneration. That's what Jesus is talking to this great Pharisee about. Christ comes to regenerate their generations. This is what Jesus calls new birth. To be born again, to be born from above, to be born of the Spirit. Until His breath returns, the generations are spiritually dead and blind. They cannot see the kingdom of God. This beautiful gift of salvation opens us up to communion with God again so that we can walk with Him in intimate relationship. Let's think about Ephesians 5 just for a moment and we'll close. Paul is talking about analogies here. The love of a husband to his wife, analogous to the love of Christ and His church. And so there again, our love relationship on the earthly realm becomes like an icon. It becomes a window opening up the reality of the way Christ loves his bride. You see, he is our bridegroom. And the Bible begins with a marriage, and the Bible ends with a marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we are living in between where (laughs) the bride is making herself ready for that glorious wedding, the unification of heaven and earth where God will be all in all. Mind-blowing, right? But that's an anticipation that we all need to bear in mind and contemplate Because Peter is saying in another passage, he says, this kind of anticipation makes us holy. It makes us holy. Just the very anticipation of our marriage to Jesus, it sanctifies us. Paul is saying, this kind of love between Christ and his church, verse 26, this self-giving love on the cross, he did all of that, opening up his arms, in showing us his love, saying, Father, forgive them, everyone around, Roman and Jewish, Gentile and Jew. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's a little glimpse of the love between Christ and his church and a husband and his wife. This is a new way to live in the earth. This is the witness of God and his love for us. If we can tap into these analogies and live into these heavenly analogies, then we know that our marriages, though sometimes difficult, right? Life is hard. That's why we have a lot of psalms to pray through and lament with and all of that. That's good. But that's not the end goal, right? I mean, all the laments end up, but God. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, yes, I, I'm struggling, but your love endures forever. <laughs> you know, even the Psalms, most of them, there's a 
one or two that end up in a dark place, but most of them end up in a good one, end up in hope. If we could tap into this heavenly reality, it would transform our marriages. I really believe it. And that's the transforming power of faith, right? As we appropriate the reality of what the ultimate marriage is all about. Christ and his church. We get to signify that. The spousal community, that's what churches are. We're spousal communities of Christ. Signifying the gospel, the good news of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Our bodies, male and female, signify the story of redemption and the destiny of creation where God will be all in all, the interpenetration of heaven and earth. A male body alone doesn't make sense. Right, guys? You know, you just kind of look around and going like, now what? Until Adam saw Eve. He went berserk. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Let's get to work. You missed a good chance to say amen there. I mean, let's get to work. You see, a woman's body doesn't make sense alone either. That's why complementarianism, you can use other words to describe this, describe our relationship with God. You know, it's not good for man to be alone. Now, even if you're called to be single and celibate, you don't have to be alone. You can be married to Christ, and you can be immersed into a community, a family, where God sets the solitary in families. And I tell you, that is a high, high calling. Yes, it is a high calling. And I honor that. And wow, I hope the Lord will continue to pour out wisdom and teach us how to be a community of singles and celibates as well as those who are married. And in a sense, that kind of celibacy proclaims the end goal even more. It proclaims that that union with Christ in some way, in a charism, is already manifesting here on earth. And that's the monastic teaching, that those who enter into that monastic relationship, who are called to that, are wedded to Christ, right? And so in some way, that is a sign of the ultimate destiny already being worked out here. And so it requires husband and wife united together to signify the mystery of Christ and his church. The union of man and woman is an icon of the union of Christ and his church, his bride. Our passage today quotes Genesis in Ephesians 5.31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It comes to mind that Jesus, talking about this to the Pharisees, also commented, those whom God has joined together, let no one put asunder, right? And that's a beautiful reality that's sacramental. It's a beautiful reality that God does. You see, I, I always tell folks when I'm officiating in their wedding that I don't marry them. Those whom God joins together. God is marrying you in his church. That's, that's the reality of a Christian union coming together. But I never say 
By the authority invested in me by the state of Missouri, I proclaim you husband and wife. I would never say that because he's the authority doing it. And I just proclaim what God is doing. That's the sacrament of Christian marriage. And so a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. As you read various church fathers who are reflecting on that passage in Genesis, they see a Christological aspect there where a man shall leave his father and cleave unto his bride. Christ, who came down from heaven and became a human being in order to unite the human race together as his bride, you see. And so you see those dimensions of what Christ is all about. Even in Genesis, that first marriage is signifying the wedding and the union of Christ and his church. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? The Lord has so created our bodies to complement each other unto the generation of life. And this speaks of the mystery of our present communion and our final destiny, culminating in a heavenly wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is how we witness to the world that Christ is calling the whole earth to marry him. Christ, who takes away the sins of the world, is calling the whole earth to marry him. All creation on tiptoe, awaiting the manifestation of the sons and daughters of God. He so loves us that he gave himself up to redeem, to renew, and to regenerate the generations. And so let us draw near to this love this morning as we contemplate our place in the marriage supper of the Lamb when we take the Eucharist together. We're looking forward to that final day by Him, with Him, and in Him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen.